Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. In our episode today, we talk with Bill Vink, an M&A specialist in Scottsdale, Arizona. Bill shares a deal transaction where a founder of an IT-based business had an unrealistic expectation on the valuation of his business solely based on his internet research. In fact, in Bill's opinion, the business was probably overvalued by as much as 75 to 100 percent. Listen closely as Bill describes how this potentially deal-breaking fact was negated when buyer and seller chemistry created a situation where one plus one actually equaled three. Next, Bill shares a deal story of how a $12 million revenue company with five equal owners never could come to a mutual agreement on the urgency and the reasons for exiting their business. While they all agreed to sell the business, they had a completely different set of motivations and reasons for selling the business. Some wanted to sell yesterday, others couldn't care less if the business sold within the next two years. This ended up driving six highly motivated strategic buyers away from the table. Because there was never going to be a consensus between the owners on getting the business sold, Bill ended up walking away from the deal because of the hopelessly divided opinions of the owners. Next, Bill shares an interesting transaction that involved an ESOP. As you know, an ESOP is a acronym for Employee Stock Ownership Plan. You'll learn how an owner's illness caused a huge drop in the value of the business and consequently the valuation of the ESOP. This impacted the employee's value in the business. This ultimately ended up in the termination of the ESOP when the business was sold. Finally, Bill wraps up this episode by discussing a transaction where the founder of the business, who absolutely loved what he did, was forced to sell his business because of pressure from his family. This transaction is instructive for entrepreneurs listening into this episode on the importance of structuring their business to allow for either a transition out of their business where there is a meaningful life after they exit, or that their business can operate without them, allowing for a lifestyle of modest involvement without exiting their business. There are plenty of good takeaways in this episode. Enjoy. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today, we're here with Bill Vink. Bill, would you take a few minutes and introduce yourself? Sure. As Marvin said, my name is Bill Vink. I'm a managing director with Chapman Associates. I work in Scottsdale, Arizona, although my client base extends throughout the United States. And I've been with Chapman now for pushing six years. So... We are active on both the buy side and the sell side of the mergers and acquisitions business. Can you tell me a little bit about Chapman? Chapman is an old M&A firm. We're about 65 years old. We have completed 
close to 3,000 transactions. We're a nationwide firm with about 10 managing directors, and we're very active. Over time, we've sold billions of dollars of businesses. And as I mentioned earlier, we work on both the buy side and the sell side. All right. Well, Bill, today we're going to chat a little bit about some of those transactions that you've been involved in that were challenging or had their issues for you to work with those buyers and sellers to get those transactions closed. And maybe you closed all of them or some of them and some of them you didn't. So why don't we jump right in and talk about a transaction that uh, had its challenges and some of the issues that you had and why. I can talk about a manufacturing company. The founder contacted me. He had an interest in selling the company. It had been over 30 years in business. It was a very profitable small company. He had started the business working out of the trunk of his car, literally. He created and manufactured a type of automobile industry product, and he had grown it into a significantly sized business. He was under a great deal of encouragement slash pressure from his family to sell the company. And he was a, a very senior gentleman. He was in good health, but he's well beyond the traditional retirement age. And so we began marketing the company. And it was clear as we were going through this process that the pressure from his family to sell was growing. And I explained to him and was in contact with some of the family members that as you may be aware, the business of selling a company is not something you can check on on an hourly basis and hope to get an update. It takes time. And frankly, the more urgent you are, the more difficult it can sometimes be. Well, let's talk a little bit about the business in a little bit more detail. Tell me a little bit more about the product that he developed. The product, he had a, a number of products and they were in the automobile aftermarket universe. And he sold to automobile uh, servicing centers. And it was a product that he had designed himself and that he had manufactured in his own facility. And so the nature of his business was, was staying and maintaining relationships with these automobile servicing facilities and selling them product. Uh, he, as I said, he'd done this for the better part of 30 years, was always introducing new variations on his product. So it's quite a successful company. And he loved this company. And the driver behind all the encouragement he was getting to sell from his family and others, what was the driving issue there? I think there were two things. One, his age. He, he was, as I said, well beyond typical retirement age. He was in relatively good health, but he was beginning, as many of us do, beginning to have health issues. And so the pressure from uh, his wife and pressure from his adult children grew that they wanted him out of the business. They weren't, in my opinion, in a position to listen to just how important it was to him to do his job. He loved this company. He loved this business. And many of his clients were, among other things, personal friends. And so by getting out of the business, he was losing a, a huge part of his life. Financially, he was in excellent condition, but in terms of his day-to-day -day life, and that's why I would score this as not being a terribly successful transaction, we sold the company. But if you talk to the man today, he would say, I'm not happy with it because I lost a piece of my life and I didn't really have anything 
to replace it with. As he worked toward that sale, give us a sense of what the volume was on a either monthly or annual basis. Well, in a, in a good month, he could do adjusted EBITDA of around $400,000. And his overall annual sales would range between six and $8 million. So he had a very profitable business. He had a fairly small headcount in his manufacturing facility. He had about 10 folks in his office. He had about eight folks. As I said, he was very active himself in the business. Sales was handled via the internet and via in, inside salespeople. So inside salespeople would contact customers and prospective customers and in effect take orders over the phone. The products were so well received that a field sales effort wasn't needed. Well, sounds like an incredibly unique type of business that had some real benefits. Who was the acquirer? The acquirer was another source of pressure. Uh, he had a friend who had admired the business, and his friend uh, made an offer on the business, which I felt was not a particularly attractive one, but was able to use all of those you know, subtle interpersonal sources of pressure to compel willingness on the part of, of the seller to agree to the terms. And I met with the, the buyer on a number of occasions. I met with the buyer, his financial backers, and the owner on a number of occasions. And I really disliked all components of this transaction. I met with the seller, my client, individually on a number of occasions. And I said, I, I just cannot advocate this as your agent. I don't think this is good for you. I don't think it's good for your family. And I'm not talking so much about the financial terms. I just think in general, the structure of this transaction is not fair to you. It's not respectful to you. And when you say that, Bill, when you talk about it not being fair, what are you really referring to? I felt that the structure of the transaction was really built on taking advantage of what in a publicly traded company would be seen as insider information. They knew that he had some health issues. They knew he was under terrific pressure to sell the company. And so they showed up with a what I consider to be not a terribly attractive offer and really advocated that not only with the seller, but also with the family. And that was more manipulative. You know, I like to see these things as arm's length transactions, and we can look at them in terms of the objective characteristics of the terms and conditions and evaluate them. But when there is a, a personal dimension and there's manipulation going on behind the scenes, for an individual who's already vulnerable, as I mentioned, he's a senior guy, his wife is leaning on him, his children are leaning on him, that's a lot of pressure to, to resist, and it's very difficult to see a way where you can ultimately have the wherewithal to just say no to all of you. This is not a good deal. I was happy, and I, as I mentioned, I went through it with the family members and said, this is simply not a good, good deal. We can do better, but we can't do it if you have to do something tomorrow. But that was to no avail. So the transaction closed. The owner, in my opinion, was was not happy when he got out. And if you talk to him today, I, I think he would, he would echo that. So I guess what you're really saying, Bill, here is that if you measure success in a transaction like this by the definition of selling the business, you had a successful transaction. 
But if you value or look at the transaction on what the objectives were and whether the seller came out with what he really wanted and needed, it probably wasn't a very successful transaction. Is that a, a fair statement? It is. I, I encourage an owner to think in terms of his personal preparation. Do you know what you're going to do when you retire or when you get out of this business, when, when the deal closes? So preparation is a question of fact. It's not a state of mind. And in this case, the, the owner did not know what to do with himself and with his time after the close. And if I would score it as a failure, it would be because I did not succeed in, in convincing him or his family that having a detailed view of what he was going to do once this thing closed would be essential. And I believe it is, but he didn't have it and he was not able to get it. And so it didn't work out. His business was attractive and he was mentally ready, but he was not otherwise prepared. Well, there's a pretty good takeaway, I guess, when you are looking at exiting. Some of the advice you would give is really to understand what uh, you're going to be doing after you sell the business and that you're getting out of the sale what you really need, not only financially, but emotionally as well. That's correct. All right, Bill, why don't we move on to a transaction that, that was also challenging and share a few of the details of that. I worked with an owner of a technology company, a very successful company. I, I would have scored him as ready personally. I would have scored his business as ready and attractive to be sold. The challenge with this individual in this company was that uh, he had an unrealistic valuation. He had a a value in mind of what he needed from this transaction that was roughly twice what I knew the market would support. I don't argue valuations. I simply present the results of objective valuations and explain them <clears throat> and hope that somehow logic will, will intervene. But this was a very attractive company. I took it to market. Talk a little bit more about the company. What were some of the unique characteristics and what niche was it in? It's a technology company. It was in the managed service business. It had been in that business for north of 25 years. The owner, I thought, was extremely realistic in one area, and that was that he felt that he had grown this business as much as he was capable of growing. He felt the business itself was a fine platform for continued growth, but he did not have the wherewithal to continue that growth. And so that was the, one of the motivating factors behind the decision to sell. That's kind of unusual, isn't it, Bill, for at least in your experience, is to find someone that comes to grips with what his skill set is and what he can actually do with the business currently and in the future? It is. Although if, if you can spend a lot of time with an owner and get to know them better and have them feel more comfortable with you, you begin hearing things and seeing things that probably didn't come up in the first discussion. Now, the first discussion tends to be very transaction focused. I want to sell the company and I need a lot of money for it. And discussions about other components tend to take more time and require that some trust and frankly, some deliberation on the part of the ownership because they, they don't always take the time to think about what what is really motivating me to do this beyond a desire to sell? Why do I have that desire? 
Well, in this case, he really understood where his company was at and what his skill sets were, which I find and don't hear very often of founders, entrepreneurs really coming to grips with what they can and can't do with their business. And then having the moxie to actually look forward and how to best serve the company and all the employees. Yes, he was very astute in that. And he had built a business that had a, a broad client base. He had a lot of different vertical penetrations. He had a solid management team. He was important to the business on a day-to-day basis. He was a 100% owner and he was a chief executive, but he was not the soul that kept it together. So he could go on vacation. He could step away from the office and catastrophe would not follow. So in that sense, he was very, a very solid manager. So what was the real challenges in closing this transaction and moving it forward? Well, I mentioned his sense of valuation. I was able to identify a number of potential strategic buyers. So let's revisit that just for a second, if you don't mind, Bill. Sense of valuation, where did he come up with this expectation that his company was more valuable than you thought it was, I guess? He maintained that he had done some research on the internet, and that convinced him that the value that he had stated was was appropriate. I'd asked, you know, have you had a formal valuation done? Have you talked to anybody who has a credential or a background in valuation? The answer was no. So I am second to none in my admiration of the wisdom of the internet, but but that's not really a good basis for valuing your company. Was this like 25% more, 50% more than what realistic valuation would have been? Yeah, this this would have have been in excess of 50% over market. And how did it roll out? That was the, the challenge. I introduced him to a strategic buyer. We had a series of, of meetings, which were you know introductory, obviously. Tell me about your business. I'll tell you about mine. Uh, we talked about general terms and conditions of what a, a reasonable transaction might look like. There was nodding agreement on that, but we spoke at such a general level that it wasn't terribly, terribly conclusive, but the discussions were, were quite positive. And in addition to discussing terms and conditions, we also discussed the conditions of the industry. And we, as I mentioned, we were in the managed services business. And so we talked about the managed services business. We talked about the products within that business. And we talked about the, the market for such services and the market for such products. And we began to see on both the buyer side and the seller side an increasing regard for one another's opinions. And so they started probing one another really outside of the context of a transaction and asking questions of the form, well, what do you think about this type of technology? What do you think about this type of market? Is there an opportunity there? And so they were probing one another just because they recognized in the other individual, an individual who had an opinion that was worth listening to. And so they began discussing the future of the business in its many ways. And all of a sudden, the conversation went from, I need this and I want that and you need this and you want that to, well, we could do this together. 
if we were working together. And we could do that. And if we were combined, all sorts of other opportunities would emerge. And this took place over, you can imagine, a number of different discussions in a number of different venues and over a, a period of time. But it was clear that the conversation now was going away from the specific terms and conditions. How much money am I going to get? When am I going to get it? Am I going to have an employment contract or not? To more general, how could we get on together? And so in the process of having these conversations, I think a, a very warm and respectful relationship emerged. It became clear that both parties saw a future there. And so the terms and conditions discussion, when we returned to it, was much easier to work out. So we ended up with a condition where we had a letter of intent, due diligence was done, a closing was scheduled and took place. But the nature of the relationship now is that, yes, the owner of the business that was sold had an employment contract, but he ultimately became, and almost immediately became, the number two guy in the joint enterprise. And they are now partners, and he has a solid equity position in addition to the, the financials associated with the transaction proper. But he has an equity position in a much larger company now, and he was at a point in his life where he was ready to retire or he was ready to continue working. He elected to continue working because over those months of discussion, he became convinced that he and the buyer would have a great relationship. They could work well together. And, and this is an example, as corny as it may sound, where one and one is really three. Sometimes one and one is a half or only two. But in this case, the combination of the two produced a much greater entity. And I, I stay in touch with the buyer and the seller. I talk to them uh, with some frequency. And both would say, we are, we're very happy that we did this deal. We're very happy with the way it's going. And frankly, we're looking for more. So life was, was very good. I'd score this as a success in all of the myriad ways of success. Well, you know, as I listened to you describe how buyer looked at a company and probably had a, a lower valuation in mind than the seller had because the seller had done all of this research on the internet and felt his business was obviously very valuable. But you get into a situation like this where people really check their egos at the door, don't have to be the smartest guy in the room, and they're kind of willing to adjust their expectations. And when you find that type of synergies where they start looking at opportunities versus how they can get more chips on their side of the table in the transaction, chemistry forms between a buyer and a seller that really, in this particular situation is what you're telling me, is that they really saw the combined entities as a very good strategic relationship and they proceeded to move along that path. That's exactly right. They're both entrepreneurs. They're both very successful. They both were very capable individuals. But as you as you say, they were able to check their ego at the door. They didn't have to be the smartest guy in the room. And they were very effective listeners. They had very pronounced points of view about technology and market and direction. But they were also open to listening to the other guy. And that's why I use the expression one and one is three, because they were both capable of learning. And 
not relinquishing something that they held as important, but modifying it. And in that modification, they achieved a much greater level of success than they otherwise would have had. So it was a it was a very edifying experience, and I was grateful to have been a part of it. Well, that's a great takeaway, to keep an open mind, to listen, to see what you can learn. And in this particular case, those synergies really created a, a dynamic uh, duo, really, uh, kind of a Batman and Robin type of situation where they really were able to join forces and accomplish something that is, as you say, probably still growing, correct? Yeah, and although they, they both might say that they were Batman. <laughs> Either one's Robin. Well, sometimes two Batman are good, huh? Yes, sir. As the host of Business Exit Stories, I have the opportunity to interview guests and share stories of entrepreneurs that have different types of business exits and sometimes quite dramatically different. Some that are successful and quite frankly, some that are not so successful. One of the common themes with these exit stories is that entrepreneurs spend years, if not decades, in building a business, but spend very little time thinking about how they will exit their business at some point. Why is this? Well, what I've concluded is this. Because these entrepreneurs are so busy running their business, they believe they don't have the time to think about how they will exit their business. Because they have their heads down and are focused on building up their business and scaling it, why in the world would they be thinking about selling their business now? I will think about that later. Generally, this is really a bad decision, as the exit stories you hear on these podcasts sort of demonstrate. As I've thought about the dramatically different exit outcomes that these entrepreneurs achieve, I began to catalog the tactics and strategies that facilitate successful and profitable business exits. Later this year, I will be publishing a book presented in a case study format that any entrepreneur can read and learn about and understand successful business exit strategies, and that if they put these into practice, they will prepare their business for a successful and profitable exit. In writing this book, I decided to use a parachute metaphor. Think about this. Pilots don't pack their parachute when their engines are on fire. They have their parachutes packed and ready to go when they need it. Likewise, successful business owners should pack their parachute and have it ready far in advance of when they need it, because sometimes they will have to exit their business unexpectedly. To get a copy of my upcoming book, Pack Your Parachute, The Strategies Behind Successful and Profitable Business Exits, go to my website, businessexitstories.com forward slash book. Again, that's businessexitstories.com forward slash book. And if you register now for the pre-publication edition, I will send you a discount code that you can use on Amazon for a 90% off reward and discount for just being a Business Exit Stories podcast listener. So get your book now. All right. Well, share another transaction with us, uh, maybe a positive outcome like you described here, or maybe not. I'll let you tell a transaction that, that there was a good outcome or an outcome that our audience can learn from. I have a, or had a client, and they were in the construction industry. They manufactured a type of products for both the residential and the commercial construction industry. 
it was a company that had been around for about 20 years. Uh, my point of contact was uh, the founder. Uh, he listed himself as the chief financial officer, uh, but they had multiple owners. They had a total of five owners, all of whom were active in the business, some of whom were family members. And when I say active in the business, I mean they they built parts of the various products that they built. So they were these were very hands-on guys. So you really couldn't look at them and say, this guy's the president and that guy's the operating officer and so forth. These were hands-on construction industry folks. So you mentioned that they were all owners. Did they all have equal equity or was there a founding member that had a controlling interest? No, they all uh, had equal an equal part in the company. They would meet on a weekly basis and have lunch every Monday. They would talk about the business. They would agree on who's going to do what. It was a very much hands-on organization. How they got into that situation is a lengthy story. We probably don't have time for it today. But they had reached the point where they wanted to exit the business, but they wanted to exit for a variety of different reasons. And so I took the assignment. We began marketing the company. It had a very nice client base. It had a very nice reputation. And it had a very nice uh, construction and manufacturing capability. What was the revenue level of the company? We were in the vicinity of, uh, say, $12 million-ish. So it was a good-sized company, $1 million dollars a month in revenue, although being associated with the construction industry, it had its ebbs and flows. And they, they were not immune to that. I had two major challenges with this situation. The diversity of the ownership structure. Let me clarify that. The diversity in attitude and philosophy versus uh, equity participation. That's correct. Yeah, we had five guys. They all had different senses of urgency about the, the idea of selling. They were all agreeable to it, but they had a different sense of the pace. So some wanted to do it yesterday and some said, well, maybe next year. Yeah. And some were happy to stay. Some had to get out right away. So the variety of different personal agendas, all of which had their reasons, all of which had to be respected, but all of which would present a potential red flag to a buyer because they don't like risk. They don't like a plethora of opinions that they have to deal with. And so what I wanted to do and tried to do was to focus everything through the founder, which I was able to do. But whenever we would have a meeting, a conference with a prospective buyer, he would somehow not be able to stop himself from talking about the other owners. Well, when you talk about other owners having other thoughts and opinions, that tends to have strategic buyers fall off their chair. You know, they just get very concerned over that because they see that as a source of risk, not as a source of value. And I didn't succeed in, in weaning him off of that behavior. The other issue that I had was that he was, he billed himself as the chief financial officer. So he was the guy that I would go to to get the information for the financial performance of the company. Uh, this was not a strong suit for him. He was not a CPA. As a, as a matter of profession. And when I created the first SIM, the Confidential Information Memorandum about the company, the financial information that I put in there, which I got from him, 
uh, he calls me in a panic and says, oh, my God, I, I made a mistake. Well, he did make a mistake, and it was a significant one, and it was a significant one in the area of adjusted EBITDA. Strategic buyers and any buyer, really, is interested in your adjusted EBITDA. They will spend as much time on that initially as they will on anything else. That's kind of the topic that gets them interested in you. If you have a healthy adjusted EBITDA, they're probably interested in talking. If it's pretty pathetic, that upsets a lot of them and they just don't care to continue the conversation. So in this case where you had 12 million or so in revenue, obviously for this type of company was attractive to a strategic buyer. Uh, how many buyers actually were interested and started the process of taking a look at the company? I had two very serious buyers. They would both be considered strategic buyers. They were both very industry knowledgeable. Was that two out of two or did you have four, six, eight that expressed some interest? Oh, I had a, a, a large number of folks that present, presented some interest. But uh, the way things go in a, in a situation like this is, I will contact them with a general description of the company. On the basis of that, they'll say, we'd like to hear more. When they say that, I give them, if they haven't already executed an NDA, I get an NDA from them. And then I give them a one-page, uh, what's referred to as a teaser, a document that tells them a little more about the company, but doesn't tell them what the company is. That tends to give them a basis to say, now I'm more interested or I'm not interested at all. So on the basis of <clears throat> giving them the teaser, I ended up with two guys that said, I, I want to hear more. I want to read the information memorandum. And once they do that, then they, if they're still interested, then they come back and we have a conference call. So we had <clears throat> two buyers, <clears throat> excuse me, Two buyers who reached the point where they said, we want to meet via phone with, with the owner. But that's where uh, things become a little dicey because that's where the multiple number of owners became an issue. And then as we were going through this process, I got a somewhat panicked phone call from the head owner, the founder, who said, I now have reached a point where we have to get out in the next 90 days. A time limit like that is virtually impossible. I can contact the people we've already spoken to, but to go from zero to a sold business in 90 days is really mission impossible. And it turned out to be that. The company uh, is still unsold. We no longer have a relationship. But having put a constraint of I need to sell in 90 days is really the same as saying I don't want to sell or I can't sell. And so we had to part friends. Well, that is an interesting series of events. You have a great company, it sounds like, uh, making fairly good EBITDA in a niche market, a good vertical, good client base. You look at it on paper and it looks great. But when you really take a look at the motivation of the different owners, it was like herding cats is what this sounded like. That's it. exactly. Yeah. What I would have done in retrospect is to spend more time with all the owners saying, let's figure out a way to get fewer of you at the table. Let's that help me better understand your personal urgencies. And if somebody is the individual who really has to, for whatever reason, exit the business rapidly, how do we do that? 
perhaps amongst ourselves, you know, figure out a way for one owner to be bought out by the others and have a simpler presentation to the external marketplace. Because what we had to go forward with was a level of complexity. Complexity always translates into perception of risk and risk is always unwelcome. Well, it sounds like that transaction didn't get to close and it probably won't until they follow your advice there and structure their company to have less complexity and a very definitive set of criteria for all of the owners to sell. Well, why don't we kind of wrap it up here and chat a little bit about a transaction that you have that, you know, had a fairly good outcome. I had a different technology company and I was approached by the owner who was ready for retirement. It was a good-sized company. He had about 100 employees. He had a market presence in federal government work, but he also had a market presence in what he referred to as commercial work, commercial clients. And his business in information technology was the support of networks and desktop systems in offices and plants for his clients. So if you were an end user and you had a desktop system and you had a problem with it, uh, he had equipment and people nearby who could either repair your, your situation or replace it. And so he did that. The company was uh, uh, about 25 years old, was very successful, had a kind of a blue chip client base, but the owner had a series of health issues that had taken him completely out of the business for a while. And he handed it over to a board member who was a caretaker at, at best, but he did not do anything to grow the business. The owner came back in the business, but he came back really to sell it because he had no more energy to to grow it, although he did feel he had a growth opportunity. So it sounds like in this particular situation, the health issue he had was fairly serious when it caused him to disappear for a while. It was. It was life-threatening. Uh, mercifully, he did survive and had the health to go back to work, but he did not have the resilience to leap back in and, and push the business to a higher growth plateau. So did he have a 100 employees? He must have some sort of management team. Was there other owners? Uh, how was the company structured? The company had a management team in place, but it also had an ESOP. So for our audience that may not understand that acronym, why don't you take a few minutes and tell us a little what that ESOP, E-S-O-P stands for? ESOP is Employee Stock Ownership Program. It's a way for an owner to, on a tax advantage basis, take some money out of the business and in the process of doing that, make employees owners of the business. The way that that is done is that a loan is secured from a financial institution. The financial institution uses that to buy the stock of the company for a trustee on behalf of a trustee. And the trustee holds the stock as a beneficial interest for the employees. So the employees don't own the stock, but they have a beneficial right to the stock. And the reason that companies use this type of structure is really for what? A number of reasons. One is it's a way for the owner to take some cash out of the business under tax advantaged uh, considerations. And it's a way for employees to become de facto owners. They have a beneficial interest, as I mentioned, in the performance of the company. And so it can encourage the employee 
to think more like an owner. And there's an obligation because this is a, a program that's sponsored by the federal government, by the Department of Labor. There's a responsibility on the part of the company, the trustee on his behalf to value the company on a, a regular basis. And that gives the employee an idea as to how much their interest is, is worth. They, the employee, if they choose to resign, will cash out and they'll take whatever money their, their position was worth when they leave. There are probably right now in the United States, north of 6,000 ESOPs. Some of them are extraordinarily loud, large, and some <clears throat> employees have made incredible amounts of money. So because of that possibility, it is also in the interests of the employees to stay with the company. So it's good for everybody because it can reduce turnover. So there's a lot of good reasons for it, assuming business continues to be successful. Well, for every good reason, there's generally the other side of the coin, that not so good reason that can turn around and bite you. So in this particular case, which one was it? One constant with an ESOP is that it's an expensive proposition. You have to have the valuations done regularly and you have to pay for that. And you have to have a trustee and that has to be paid for. And so there's a level of complexity that some could find daunting. And it's also the case that depending on the performance of the, the business, the valuation can come back and be fairly modest. And so we're not really building much employee uh, value. And so in this instance, the company still had an ESOP, but we reached the conclusion that the best thing to do is as we approach a sale, since some of the proceeds will have to go to the ESOP, it's best to agree that we're going to fold the ESOP, we'll close it down, but we have to do that in conjunction with the review and approval of the trustee. This is no longer the owner's decision. He can make the information available, but the trustee has to agree to the sale condition. So let me ask a question, Bill, on this ESOP, because it's a fascinating discussion here. When we have a situation like this where the owner, uh, founder, who is the majority shareholder in this case, I imagine, has this health issue and disappears, and you have a board member that steps in as a caretaker, not really a driver to grow the business, this will have an impact on the growth of the business, the profitability of the business, the valuation of the business, and this type of situation. It really does impact the ownership, and the ownership in this case was employees. And so in this particular situation where you said people had, in some cases, had made an incredible amount of money in an ESOP, in this type of situation, they probably had done well over a period of years, but with uh, someone taking their eye off of the ball, it really did impact the valuation of the company, didn't it? When an employee decides to leave the company, they will receive the value of their shares from the company and the shares revert to the company itself. So the company then, in effect, repurchases them. So they, the employee gets whatever the value was as of the day they, they leave. When there's a transaction like this, where the decision has been made with the approval of the trustee to close the ESOP because the business is, is now being sold and the new owner has no interest in it, then if we get the agreement from the trustee 
the employees get whatever their share of the transaction amount is. And that could be a fairly small amount. And in this case, that's exactly what it was. So the owner has the obligation to find out all of the remaining uh, ESOP shareholders or beneficiary shareholders, uh, identify them, get their agreement along with the trustees agreement and pay them off, even though they will, they will receive fairly little. So it's a, it's a major undertaking to become disassociated with your ESOP. Well, I guess what we're really saying here is that when you have any type of employee ownership, regardless whether it's an ESOP or a percentage of ownership or partners of any type, is that you really have to keep the eye on the ball because it's the attention that key employees and owners have on increasing the value of the business that's really important because this attention does drive valuation. Well, Bill, this has been a fascinating discussion, sometimes a little technical, and we're talking about these more complex ownership structures of one type or another. So I do appreciate you sharing with our audience here some of your experience and background. Bill, if someone wanted to reach out to you and contact you, what would be the best way for them to do that? Sure. It's easy to get to me. Uh, Cell phone is best, 480-220-3397. If you prefer email, bvink, V-I-N-C-K, at chapman-usa.com or billvink at gmail.com. Any of those three works fine. All right, Bill, this has been fascinating. Thanks for taking the time. Well, you're welcome, Marvin. Thank you. All right. So we'll see everyone later. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning. Remember to get your pre-publication edition of my new book, Pack Your Parachute, The Strategies Behind a Successful and Profitable Business Exit. Simply go to businessexitstories.com forward slash book. Again, that's businessexitstories.com forward slash book. If you register now for my pre-publication edition, I will send you a discount code that you can use on Amazon for a whopping 90% off copy of your book as a reward for being a Business Exit Stories podcast listener.